Well, if you have a Bible, you can uh, grab your Bible and open it to 1 Kings chapter 19. This summer we are studying uh, portions of 1 and 2 Kings as we walk through the life of the prophet Elijah um, and his protege, Elisha. And so we're going to be walking through that this summer. And uh, it's already been a pretty incredible series for us. And I want to invite you to get your Bibles turned to 1 Kings 19. While you're turning there, um, let me set us up this way. I don't know if you noticed this, but when you open the Bible... God never gives uh, anyone that he calls an easy job. So welcome, Jody. Um, (laughs) God never went uh, to anyone uh, when you read about his calling Abraham or Moses or or uh, Esther. When you read about all these characters, God doesn't come to them and say to them, hey, I've got this um, idea. I really don't want to inconvenience you. It's not going to take a lot of time and it won't be very hard, but I, I got a job I'd love for you to do. You see, God doesn't recruit like that. God doesn't recruit people for his mission the way the PTA does for the school, right? Or like somebody might stand up on stage at a church and tell you, you know, hey, we need a lot of help with our upward soccer program, and it's really not going to take that much time and makes a big impact in the life of kids in our community. You can sign up at the Welcome Center or online. Like, people, who would do that, right? Who would tell you, hey, we really need help with upward soccer. Please sign up, okay? I'm telling you that. <laughs> but God wouldn't because God doesn't call people that way. All right, God, when he calls people, he's honest, sometimes brutally honest. Oftentimes, God's intrusive, he's demanding. And there are even times when you're reading through the Bible and you're thinking, God, this is exhausting, thinking about how difficult this is. He says that when he calls you to something, you should expect that it's going to be hard. You should expect that his assignments and his mission in your life will be difficult. But the Bible does use the word easy one time. The Bible does say, Uh, The word easy when it explains uh, from the mouth of Jesus what it means to follow. And Jesus, his words are, come to me. All of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your soul. Because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. See, easy is a soul word. It's not a circumstance or a situational type of word. And as we continue in the life of Elijah, we're going to see this is a really important word for him to understand because his soul needed a lot of help at this point in the story. We're going to find him in a difficult place, but it's not the first difficult situation. It's not the first hard assignment God has called him to. I mean, you you know the story so far as we've walked through it. Elijah gets called to go and um, confront the most wicked ruler, perhaps in all of history, and King Ahab and his wicked witch from the south, Jezebel. Right? And so he gets called to, to go and uh, confront them. He gets led out into the wilderness after confronting them, and he's fed by these nasty animals for three and a half years while a drought settles in. Then last week we talked about how Elijah confronts them again on this mountaintop, both a literal and spiritual mountaintop experience that he has on a mountain called Mount Carmel, where he confronts this false god named Baal and the 450 prophets that followed Baal. And Elijah comes as the lone prophet of God and he confronts them. He stands up to them. And God, in this miraculous, incredible way, responds to Elijah. And I want you to think for a second. As difficult as this assignment that he was called to was, confronting all of your culture, and standing alone for God in the midst of a very difficult place. Think about how incredible it must have felt to be the guy standing on Mount Carmel when you pray, God responds in front of everybody. Their God didn't respond at all. Remember the holy trash talk that we talked, the the incredible, hey, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe he's relieving himself. You should try harder, do more. 
So all that trash, they didn't respond, but when Elijah prays, God responds. He doesn't just respond. He responds in this incredible way. For all the people that were standing around to look and say, man, Elijah, there's a guy that walks with God. There's a guy, when he prays, God listens. There's a guy who must have a special place in the heart of God. Because when he prays, when he talks, man, God responds. Have you ever had a moment like that? A moment where your confidence was so strong, it felt like nothing was going to shake it. The foundation of your faith was so secure. You were, you're like, am I ever going to have a bad day again? This is incredible. I feel so close to God. Like God and I are on the same page. I am worshiping. I've got my hands up. I'm feeling he is right here in this moment. I feel I'm connecting to him and his word like I never have before. I feel like when he, I pray, things are happening. I feel like God is using me to affect lives and live on mission. Man, I just feel good. Have you ever felt that way? Because this is what Elijah must have been feeling. I don't know, but it's hard for me to imagine that he didn't think somewhere in there that Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked witch Jezebel, she's a queen, but it sounds better. She's also that, that where they were going to be in the cheering section. Yeah, you killed all of our prophets, proved us wrong, and humiliated us in front of all of our people. Thank you. This is good. But yet, his confidence seems to get shook up a little bit because maybe he thought that there was supposed to be some sort of a revolution, a revival of sorts. Maybe he thought, even if Jezebel and Ahab don't repent, we'll just dispose of them because the people are going to be in such a united revival-type state that they're going to want to follow God and it's going to change the culture and everything's going to be incredible. Maybe he thought he was due a hero's welcome in Jezreel. as He walked back in and the people said, there's Elijah, that's the guy, Mount Carmel, everybody do what he says. But instead, as we pick up the story today, we're left with this guy, this confident, heroic prophet who gets blindsided by this queen's rage, completely blindsided. And he comes off of this mountaintop experience, this incredible moment with God and finds himself in a very deep and lonely valley. See, this experience today, it's going to deal with what happens when godly people get depressed. I know depressed, depression, it's a kind of a loaded word in our world today, and there's all kinds of different depression, ranging from people who are just extremely discouraged to people who need some medical attention and um, some medication, and there's some chemical things going on. And the goal today is not to give you the one-size-fits-all solution for all of depression. That's just not it. We're just going to be loyal to the text and try to figure out what this is saying and what we can learn from Elijah's experience with his depression. And I think we're going to learn something pretty powerful. So we're going to pick up the story, 1 Kings chapter 19, and verse 1. And here's what uh, the Lord tells us about Elijah. Now, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the, one, as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So she's clearly not in the cheering section. He was afraid, and he rose, and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey further into the wilderness and came and sat underneath a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. Now, don't miss this. Let's pause for a minute here. We'll keep going here in a second. But don't miss the fact that when Ahab reported to Jezebel, he did not report all that God had done. He reported all that Elijah had done. He, when he came back, this is telling us something. Remember at the end of chapter 18, after Mount Carmel takes place, the response of all the people that witnessed this were like, there's only one God. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. But yet Ahab walks away from witnessing this experience. 
goes to Jezebel, and he does not report what God did. He reports what uh, Elijah had done, which means he may have been impressed, but he wasn't convinced. He was not convinced that God, any more than he was before, that there is only one true God. And then we learn that Jezebel, she's not impressed or convinced either. She's just as loyal to Baal as Elijah is to the Lord. And Mount Carmel didn't do anything but it didn't lead her to repentance. It turned her into a rage monster. And she goes crazy and starts making these insane threats. And her track record with killing prophets was pretty good. So the, the thought is this threat is legitimate. Elijah understands, whoa, this is a real threat. She's going to try to kill me after she just saw what took place. This is pretty incredible. I think, this is just me speaking, I think there's a little bit of selfish political gain going on for Jezebel as well. I think she realizes all the people just saw Elijah do this, and they're all saying there's one true God. I don't really want a revolution, and so I'm going to give him a day's head start. And so she says, you better disappear. If you don't disappear, I'm going to kill you, but you better disappear, and you better never come back ever again. She gives him this little bit of a head start. And so Elijah is now terrified, which is perplexing when you're reading the story. Like, whoa, Elijah, just a minute ago, calling down fire from heaven, trash-talking all the other prophets, like you were uber-confident, borderline arrogant in your confidence, in your extroverted, charismatic-type leadership. And now all of a sudden, you're cowering and you're running. And for whatever reason, maybe he thought, hey, the people follow the king. The king hasn't changed. They're going to be loyal to the king. I don't stand a chance. Maybe he thought they didn't repent. I don't understand what else to do. I'm not sure. We don't know exactly why, but we do know he's terrified. And this great man of the faith is overwhelmed by his fear, and he takes off running. And he runs south, out of the northern kingdom, away from Jezebel and Ahab, and he comes to a place called Beersheba. This is at the very southern limit point of the southern kingdom. This is about a 90, day, a 90, 90 miles from his starting point. So 90 miles, he takes off and he, and he travels. He stops there momentarily, the text tells us, to let his servant get away and be held, like, hey, you're safe here, but I'm going another day's journey, which is about 15 more miles. So all in all, in his fear, he takes off and runs about 100 to 105 miles. And it's here, after running all this distance, we get a little bit of a glimpse into where his heart's at. It's here that we watch this great man of the faith. This man had all this confidence that one mar once marked his ministry, that now seems to be completely drained out of his life completely. And he's left exhausted and I think depressed. And James chapter 5 in the New Testament gives us a little bit of a glimpse into how this could come about. Like how, how is it possible that he could possibly be de depressed after all of this? In James 5.17, James tells us this about Elijah. It says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now we have a tendency when we read about biblical characters to put an S on their chest and watch the cape blow in the wind and they're somehow superheroes. They're not. Elijah was just a man. He was a man who had an experience that was draining him of everything that he had. He was worn out. He was burned out. And he was tired. And he comes to the place where he feels like a complete and total failure. And in desperation, he cries out, I'm no better than my ancestors. He's speaking of the prophetic ancestors that came before him. And he is saying, even though they did great things, they didn't lead to any kind of change in the culture. No matter how hard they tried, it seemed like the culture got more and more ungodly. And I thought I was going to come in and be able to do even more, God. And when I came in, my ministry, I had all this energy. I was so excited. I thought things were going to go really well. And the culture hasn't changed at all. I'm no better than them. He's coming to the end of his rope. What he's saying is, God, I've got nothing else to offer. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm tired. I'm burned out. God, where are you? Where are you? Have you ever been there? John Ortberg, in his book, Soul Keeper, he describes what he calls soul fatigue. 
Soul fatigue takes place after a combination of certain things take place in the life of somebody. And at the end result, soul fatigue is this distance you feel between you and God. Meaning, all kinds of things could be going on, but I'm so fatigued, my soul is so tired, I can't feel his presence right now. And this is what's taking place with Elijah. He describes soul fatigue this way. He says, it starts out with a fatigued body. And this is when your physical body is just worn out. This is when you go to bed too late and you wake up too early and you're running 100 miles an hour and you never take time to rest. You're feeding yourself off of donuts and Red Bull, so the nutrition's not helping you out quite at all either. And you're just completely go, 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 go. And there's not very much rest or slowness to your life. So your body physically takes a toll and you're physically fatigued. He says, combine physical fatigue with a fatigue of the mind. And he says, this is where your eyes are glued to the screen all the time, and you're having to take in all this different information. And, and in the midst of it, you're trying to like, ignore emotions that are coming up because you just, your mind has to stay focused the whole time. And it's kind of like when you're trying to ignore emotions. It's kind of like if you have a beach ball. Anybody ever had a beach ball and you try to hold it under the water? It's like extremely difficult, and you're trying so hard to just keep the ball under the water. This is what, when your mind is fatigued, you're trying to do with your emotions. Now, take body fatigue and mind fatigue and add to it the fatigued will. And this comes when most of us have to make decisions all day long. From the moment our eyes open, we're making decisions. Decision, 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 decision. Who's going where? Who's doing what? What should I wear? What are we eating? Where are we going? What's boom, 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 boom. And then you have to get back to your to-do list, which is fatiguing your mind. But then you realize you haven't taken any time to rest or slow down. And if you just cut out two more hours of your sleep, then you can get a whole lot more done. So then you don't go to sleep. But then you're so going so fast, you didn't take time to make a good decision on your food. So you buy the donut, you get the Red Bull, and all of a sudden, you have soul fatigue. Your body, your mind, your will is just exhausted. And you look up one day and you realize, oh, I can't even feel God's presence. I'm so tired. See, for many of you, you start out really strong and you do all these things and you think, God, I'm obeying you. I'm doing everything so well. And then a curveball comes your way that you weren't ready for. Your marriage starts to get tense and difficult. You begin to struggle with certain temptations. Your kids end up walking away from the Lord. Your business is tanked. You're, you lose your job. You come back from that mission trip or that retreat, and you're feeling like everything's good, all only to feel the pressure of the culture around you, putting all this pressure for you to make decisions that won't honor the commitments that you just got done making. And maybe you've been there, and you felt that, and you just think like Elijah, God, I have nothing else to offer. I'm at the end of my rope. God, where are you? Where are you? I can't feel your presence. I'm so tired. Like the Bible is full of raw, unedited stories of men and women that came before us that have walked in the valleys that you and I are just beginning to experience. They've walked through the suffering and they've walked the paths and that we're just beginning to struggle with in many of our lives. And they've left post signs along the way warning us of dangers and pitfalls. They've left uh, all kinds of evidence in the rock explaining where fatal decisions might have been made as someone tried to uh, summit a snow-capped mountain without a guide. And they're telling us, you're going, 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 and you're working in your own power. I'm telling you, you're going to crash. You're going to burn. It's going to be difficult. And many of us find ourselves just, I'm just burned out, God. I'm, I'm so tired. Consider the words of King David. King David, the, the one the Bible says is a man after God's own heart who accomplished so much in his life. These words of his that were quoted in the New Testament by Jesus, by the Apostle Paul in their times of distress. Look at his words in Psalm 69. He says this, save me, O God. 
The floodwaters of my life are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water and the floods are overwhelming me. I'm exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. You can tell me the Bible's not honest. You're going to tell me the Bible's all about just health and wealth and feeling good and faking it until you make it? See, this is where Elijah's at. He is just burned out. The type of depression, not all depression, the type of depression that Elijah's suffering from is one that many of us suffer from, and it's burnout. It is mental, willpower, body fatigue that leads us to our souls just being worn out. I mean, think about the word in verse 4, the key word. If you're one that underlines or highlights verse 4, Elijah comes to the end of himself, and the key word in that verse is enough. Like, God, I've had enough. I thought this was going to work, and it didn't work. I've been doing everything I can, and it's not working. They're still out to get me. Enough. I don't know how much more I can take. And look at how God responds in verse 5. Here's God's response. And Elijah laid down, and he slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Wake up and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked with hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and he laid down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Hey, wake up and eat. The journey you're about to go on is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And in the strength of that food, he went 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. And so the Lord's response to Elijah, in my mind, is pretty remarkable. Because when we have people that are around us that tell us, I'm worn out, I'm tired, I'm fatigued. We usually say, you got to get over it. you got to have more faith. you got to work harder. you got to do. God just pauses for a minute and listens and takes it all in and understands what he needs and says there's some physical needs that you need to address before we can get to the spiritual issue here. He says you need to rest. You need your, your, your physical body needs to sleep. And so he sends him into this very deep sleep, one that's so deep that an angel has to shove him to get him to wake up. Think about that. I heard one professor say this, hey, the most spiritual thing that you can do sometimes is take a nap. And I say yes and amen every single Sunday. <laughs> yes and amen, right? It's the most spiritual thing. And he said this. He said the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. And sometimes that nap is far more spiritually beneficial to you than memorizing another verse. And this is what God said to Elijah. You need to sleep, man. You're not seeing clearly. You're not thinking clearly. Your body needs to rest. Well, he wakes him up. And what's fascinating is that when he wakes him up, there's food prepared for him. And this food was intended to replenish his body, but it wasn't just to replenish, it was also to remind. Because the food that was prepared for him when he woke up from this deep sleep is the same exact food from chapter 17 when he was with the widow. And it's a reminder in the midst of it, like, Elijah, I'm still here. You remember what I did for you with the widow? You didn't think you guys would have enough to eat. I provided, and this is what I provided. So he provides the same exact meal. In the midst of this dark valley, this lonely, deep valley that he's in, in the middle of this depression, God sends him just the perfect reminder to say, I'm still God, and I've still got your back. And then he sends him into another sleep. His body needed more sleep. He wakes him up again, feeds him again, and says, you've got to get on your way. What we learn here is this. We're gonna, this sermon will extend into next week where David will continue what takes place on the spiritual side. But when we learn of this depression and this burnout, God meets him in this place and says there's physical and spiritual. God ministers to Elijah both physically and spiritually. The same thing happens with Jesus when he's in the wilderness. I found this fascinating. As I'm reading, all I could think about is Matthew 3 and 4. Matthew 3, Jesus hears the voice of God. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. 
the baptism of Jesus, a beautiful thing. Well, in chapter 4, he's in the desert. And Satan comes and says, hey, if you really are the son, come on, eat. And he tempts him, and he comes at him, only to, in verse 11 of chapter 4, for it to say, then the angels came and ministered to him. And so the physical needs were met as well. We live in a world, though, a culture, even within the church, where the pendulum swings really hard one way and really hard the other. There are some, and maybe you've met these people, that say, hey, most of life is just about the physical. And so if you're burned out and you're really depressed or you're sad, you just really need to take some time off. You need to eliminate anything that's causing you that sadness. And, and then you need to just take some medicine and you'll be better. Well, the pendulum can swing the other side, where many people say, no, it's not just Mostly everything is spiritual. So when the pendulum swings this way, they'll say, hey, are you really sad or you're depressed? And you're, you just need to have more faith. You need to work harder to please the Lord. You need to read the Bible more often. You need to do more. And their thought is, if you take any kind of medication or meet with any kind of therapist, man, that's like betraying your faith. When we read the Bible, though, God says, no, it's not physical, it's not the spiritual, it's both and. He says, when you're going through a valley like this, a burnout-type, depression-type valley, what we learn from the life of Elijah and the life of Jesus is that God meets the physical needs and the spiritual needs. And he, they both work together. They work together to meet the accomplishment that God wants, which is a completely healthy person. I find it pretty fascinating that God shows completely different tactic than our culture would tell us. Think about it this way. I think in a very similar way, along the path of someone in our culture today who's going through a difficult time, God might instead put a therapist or a counselor or the right kind of medication to get your mind in the right place to prepare you to meet and see him clearly when he's ready to meet those deep spiritual needs you can't seem to get to. And we kind of look down on that for whatever reason. I don't understand it. And I think it's time that we start to recognize that God meets needs in a variety of different ways, and they're all a gift. He's going to meet people where they need to be met to meet their needs physically so that spiritually he can save and restore their souls. And it happens to all of us. I hesitate to tell you this, but I, I want it to be real for you. In two weeks, I'm going to be traveling to do some intensive counseling myself. Not for any specific thing, but I'm going to go meet with a counselor who specifies in another place who specifies with working with pastors. And I'm going to allow him to do what he needs to do to help me identify some blind spots that I don't know that I have right now. And I'm not quite sure what it's going to ha what's going to happen with it, but I just have this feeling I don't want to get to the place where I'm burned out. I don't want to get to the place where I can't see him. And so I want to do a preventative check. And I'm going to meet with this person who's going to do for me what I can't do for myself. And as we explore and talk through some things, some people might say, hey, Rob, me and you're supposed to be a pastor. Are you really that weak? I would say, no, I think I'm that wise. Because I want to see God. I, I just, I always want to see him. And sometimes God meets our needs with the help of someone who can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's what he did with Elijah. Think about it this way. Imagine that there's someone hiking the Swiss Alps, okay? And as they're hiking, there's an unexpected storm that hits, this blinding, intense blizzard of a storm, and they can't see a foot in front of their face. They don't understand what's going on. And in a moment of desperation, they finally yell out, man, am I alone? Is anybody there? Can someone help me? And in the middle of the storm, a voice comes yelling back, yeah, hey, I'm here. Just jump off the ledge that you're on, and you're going to land on a path. Now, if you've never heard that voice, are you likely to make that leap? I don't know. 
But suppose the voice coming out of the storm sounded more like this. Hey, I've hiked this mountain for 35 years. I know every single inch of this mountain. If you'll jump off the ledge you're on, you're going to land on this path. Here's the name of that path. And that path is going to lead you down to this place. And you're going to be perfectly safe. You can trust this. Just take the leap. Let's take it even further. Suppose that before this hike were to have started, this person would have been exposed to the stories of the many people who had gone ahead of him on the mountain who had come back to say, I was lost, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I heard a voice, and the voice said, do this, and so I did it, and I'm safe, and I'm here today. As you go on the mountain, if you find yourself in that kind of a place, and you hear that voice, you can listen to it. Now, when you hear that voice, are you likely to make the jump? You can see where this is going. This is the voice of God, who uses the stories of the people who have come ahead of us to minister to us in the middle of our valleys. Those who have walked a few steps ahead of us. This is exactly what happens to Elijah. See, in verse 8, it says that at the end of this long, uh, treacherous, difficult valley of a journey, he comes to Mount Horeb. Well, Mount Horeb in your Bible is known by a different name as well, Mount Sinai. And that's the same mountain that God met Moses on. And that's the same mountain that God gave his people the Ten Commandments. And Elijah would have known the stories of all that God did on Mount Sinai. And he knew that as God met his physical needs, he needed to go and meet with God so God could do some soul work on Mount Sinai. See, this is what church is for. I've said this a thousand times, and I'm going to say it uh, many, many more. And if you get tired of hearing it, let's say it a few more times so it sinks in deep. This is what church is for. Church is not a seat where you stare at a stage and get impressed by people performing for you. Shame on us. If that's what it becomes, because of moments like this, when we're in the valley, church is about rubbing shoulders with the people who might be a few steps ahead of you that have walked through that portion of this trail before you got there. And they can say, there's a post sign here. There's a pitfall there. Watch out. Here we go. We're doing this together. It's about collecting the stories of the people who have walked through the difficulty before we got there. Not faking it. Not faking it. Pretending like we got it all together when we're walking through a valley and we're burned out and we're wondering, God, where are you? And we need the voice of somebody saying, hey, God's here. I've been there, man. God's here with you. Let's do this together. I love this church for that reason. Been here 11 years, and in those 11 years, many times I've gone to someone wiser than me in this place. And I said, I don't know what to do. And they've walked with me. This is what God did for Elijah. He met his physical needs to prepare him to do work on his soul. But here's the thing. You can meet all your physical needs, and you should. We've talked about that today. But it's going to come up short if in the long run you don't let God meet the needs of your soul. Let me close this way. Charles Spurgeon is one of the most well-known preachers in all of history. In fact, he's known as the Prince of Preachers. He preached in London at the New Park Street Chapel. When he preached, people showed up. 10,000 people at a time would show up to hear this man preach. As a matter of fact, that's, before, now that's hard for us because there's like 10,000. That's like every corner in Indianapolis. That didn't happen back then, ever, anywhere. So for all these people to show up, it was so overwhelming. They had to change venues multiple times to accommodate the crowds that would come to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. It was just incredible. So it may come as a surprise to you like it did to me to learn that most of his life, Charles Spurgeon battled depression. Until you learn that many of the people that showed up in that crowd did not like that he was preaching the truth, and so they tried to sabotage it. One instance that really affected him traumatically was when someone yelled fire in the middle of one of those crowds, and a stampede ensued, and seven people were killed. Seven people died. 
many people said Spurgeon never got over that. Kind of felt like it was his fault. Then you learn that he, he battled gout and many other medical conditions that he constantly had to try to get treatment for, meeting those physical needs so that he could be prepared spiritually to meet with the Lord. He never once said, I just have to have faith. He, he had to go get the help he needed to have in order to be prepared spiritually to move forward. And in one of his sermons speaking to his church, here's what he said to them. I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps so more than any other person here. And I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart, to seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all of my transgressions. The text is clear, guys. Walking with the Lord won't be easy. The mission he's called us to will be difficult. And we will have Mount Carmel moments, but we will also walk through the valley, and it will be very hard. But there is a clear invitation to each one of us in the midst of that valley. And it comes from Jesus when he says, come to me, all of you who are burned out heavy laden, tired. Come to me and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Accepting that invitation, that's up to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for lifting the burden that was too heavy for us, for dying on the cross, so that in the midst of our worst days, we can look up and have hope. Because we know there's coming a day when you're going to wipe every tear from every eye. You're going to walk with us. You're going to be our God, and we're going to be your people. But until that day comes, it's hard, and it's heavy, and the valley is real. Would you help us have the courage not to walk through that alone, not to carry that burden by ourselves, but to walk alongside our brothers and sisters, to find someone who's a few steps ahead that will point us toward you. Father, as you meet our physical needs, whether that's counseling or therapy or medication or just a nap and some good food with some good people, may it always point us to being prepared to see you clearly and allow you to do the hard work of soul care as we seek to bring you glory with our lives. Father, as we respond here in this next moment, may, may it be from a place of sincerity. We pray for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.